The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, tonight on the show, your nemesis. My nemesis. And that did not come up one time, actually. I'm a little bit disappointed. <laughs> I know. I'm actually... bringing it up now, <laughs> now that he has left the building. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, we are talking about the great Dr. Jeff Colburn. He's everyone's favorite endocrinologist. And he was talking with us about diabetes in an episode that we're going to call the Diabetes FAQ. Because, Paul, this stuff comes up all the time. A reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Paul, can you tell the audience, what is it that we do on the show? Yeah, happy to as always. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, we have uh, the spectacular Jeff Colburn, who also it's supposed to be my nemesis, and I will say, just poor work tonight. Like, he didn't have anything but nice things to say about us. He had a positive <laughs> energy throughout. It was really, it was disappointing and upsetting to me. But we did learn a ton about how to manage patients who are living with diabetes from uh, in a very practical, um, case-based way, as is our way. So before we get into it, why don't I turn the mic back to you, and you can tell us a little bit about Jeff before we get into the cases. And for the audience, this nemesis thing came out of I went to a conference very early on. It was the ACE conference without Paul or Stuart and Jeff was co-hosting. So there was this running joke that Jeff was gunning for Paul's job. And, you know, that's where the nemesis came from. But the great Dr. Jeff Colburn, he is a board certified endocrinologist and clinician educator in San Antonio, Texas. He works at an academic medical center where he's had many positions, including key core faculty member for internal medicine, He's been an internal medicine clerkship director, and he's currently serving as a program director for endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism fellowship at his home institution. He's too humble to put this in his bio, but he was a co-author of the VADOD diabetes guidelines in the past, and I believe is working on them for a future iteration as well. And he enjoys, he he says he enjoys listening to the curbsiders while mowing the lawn or exercising it's always great to have him on the show. He's an award-winning educator, which you will easily understand why. So without further ado, let's get on to our conversation with Dr. Jeff Colburn. Well, everybody, we're back with our good friend, Jeff Colburn. Jeff, give the audience a one-liner about yourself. I know you've been on the show many times, many famed episodes on diabetes, which we will link to for the audience, but uh, remind them who you are, what do you like to do for fun? Uh, thanks for inviting me back. Let's see. I'm a 38-year-old endocrinologist. Uh, I do academic medicine. I also uh, work on the wards for internal medicine, so I definitely know the pain and plight of being a subspecialist and then also getting in into that field of practice again. Things I like to do, I like to rock climb. I try and stay fit as time of life goes forward and things become hard to do. Little kids get in the way, work gets in the way, and yeah, just trying to maintain some health <laughs> through physical fitness. That way, I guess my patients can see a bit of a model of that. So, Yeah. I, I think from when I've known you, you've always done a, a good job at that. 
So speaking of taking care of yourself, what are you doing? Tell us about something. This is, We're in the picks of the week section of the show. Since you've been on, we've already asked you all the other usual questions, but I'm sure you're, there's something new that you're into. Could be Could be a book, could be a movie or TV show, or just anything you want to recommend to the audience. Uh, Yo-Yo, Paul, Paul likes to make fun of me for my <laughs> offbeat picks of the week. Now, I remember uh, you did one a while ago, the jump rope. And every time, I do jump rope once in a while, and I think of that comment every time. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's like stuck in my brain forever. So thank you, Matt. Appreciate that, uh, the yeah. jump rope. Um, well, I'm kind of finishing through a audiobook series from an author named Stephen Saylor, who um, uh, wrote on uh, this kind of Roman Times fictional stories with this um, kind of detective sort of character, Gordianus the Finder, and the uh, Roma Sub Rosa, the Rome Under the Rose, which is kind of a finding the secrets of the city. And it's interesting, he does tons of background research into the historical events, and then writes these really beautiful stories about, you know, fictionalized stories of what happens. And it's a detect series. But he's written tons of these very cool books. I just found it, just randomly stumbled upon them in audiobooks. And yeah, I listen to audiobooks and curbsiders yeah. when I'm doing uh, mowing my lawn and <laughs> <laughs> other things. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds right up my alley. Usually I pretend yeah. like I'm going to read whatever book someone recommends, but like that one I may actually hunt down. So that, that sounds pretty that cool. Sounds, it, that, yeah. That's a pretty it's unique a, idea. It's a good series. Paul, what about you? Tell us, uh, what is your pick of the week for this week? Well, you know, we were talking off air and I had this panicked moment where I didn't have one. So I sort of looked around the room to see if there's anything I would recommend. And I, every so often I'll recommend a Lego set. And I'm, this is, this is one I have to, I cannot recommend highly enough. It's the Pirates of Veracruda Bay Lego set. It is like 2,500 pieces. It is this gigantic pirate ship that's broken up into three parts that is actually on this um, desert island, basically. And it has like, you know, a bunch of pirates and a shark and functional cannons and sails that actually unfurl. The whole thing is is awesome. It took me like three weeks to put together. But if you enjoy these sort of Zen meditation of putting together a Lego set, that, that is one that I cannot recommend enough. That that sounds fantastic. Okay, maybe we'll, we'll link to a picture of it in the show notes <laughs> for the audience. We'll chase that down. My pick of the week is definitely very unoriginal, and I think I think in the past it's been recommended on the show. But I, Paul, I'm late to the game. I recently started watching Rick and Morty, and my gosh, that it is so weird and fun and inappropriate. It's just uh, you know, at the end of a long day, Paul, it's just I've been I've been tearing through. It's it's not that much because the, there are short episodes and the seasons are only like 10 or 12 episodes each. I think they have four seasons, so it's not too much of a time commitment. Watch the first episode or two and you'll get a sense if you like it or hate it. But I watched the first 10 minutes and I was like, yeah, this is... Um, I, I didn't think I would like cartoons anymore, but turns out I do. Yeah, I had that weird contrarian thing where like I'm told so often that I would love it that I'm kind of scared to watch it just to prove people right. So I haven't actually seen an episode yet, but maybe this, maybe I'll break down and try this weekend. This is why Paul has never heard any of the music or seen Hamilton and never will. I think it's the same thing. <laughs> that's a whole that's a whole separate thing. I just don't like people singing in people's faces. We've talked about this. Yeah. Jeff, have you ever seen it? I haven't. No. Have you seen Rick and Morty? Uh, no? I have okay. not with that either. What about you're, Hamilton? You're striking out on all of them, dude. No, <laughs> you know, although I mean, okay. uh, but have definitely, you know, like the whole the YouTube segment portions of things, you know, like when you don't have time to be able to go anywhere or, you know, pandemics yeah. prevent that, then you can you can go on YouTube and watch a piece of something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, check, you know, check it out. I, I can't speak to the Hamilton. I can say the Weird Al Hamilton polka. I've already recommended that on the show. <laughs> Audience, oh, check that out. Uh, and also check out Rick and Morty. I can't speak to the full Hamilton show. I, I too, Paul, it's, you know, it's not, it's not my thing.
This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Audience, you remember BetterHelp. I've been talking about them for at least six months now, and long before they were a sponsor on the show, I was using BetterHelp. As I've said, and as you know, we've talked about on the show, mental health, especially among healthcare providers, clinicians, is a huge problem, and there's always been this stigma attached to it. But what I love about BetterHelp is from the comfort and privacy of your own home, you can connect with a professional therapist securely online. They're going to match you with a therapist in under 48 hours. They offer a broad range of expertise and their services are available worldwide. You can schedule a weekly video or phone session with your therapist and you can also send them a secure message anytime and they're going to get right back to you. And if you don't like your therapist, it's easy and free to change to a new therapist because let's face it, you know, it might take a little while for you to find someone that you like to work with. Visit betterhelp.com curb. That's better H-E-L-P and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people are using BetterHelp. They're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. There's a special offer for Curbsiders listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash curb. Let's get to a case from Cashlack. <laughs> and Paul, did, do you want to do the honors? Sure. I, so I, I think what we've done is actually outlined a, a series of not uncommon scenarios. And we're just going to ask uh, Jeff to kind of talk us through his approach to some things that have, I think have challenged all of us who work in primary care and specifically with patients who are living with diabetes. So let's let's talk about a new case first. We're going to have a 39-year-old male. This is a gentleman who's coming to your office. He's got a history of obesity with a BMI of 33, high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, family history of diabetes. He's presenting to our office as a new patient after he was admitted and found that incidentally, maybe not so much, having new diagnosis of diabetes that came along with a right leg abscess. During the hospital stay, severe hyperglycemia, glucose is greater than 800 milligrams per deciliter. And then if you do a little bit of digging, you find out that he wasn't feeling great even before the hospitalization. He was having fatigue. He had 20 pounds of weight loss, polyphagia, polydipsia, polyuria. While admitted, started on metformin and basal bolus insulin, and then dis discharged on metformin and, and just basal insulin, and now is here to see us to kind of continue to manage the diabetes and maybe start working up what's been going on here. So to start with the case, uh, when you have one of the initial questions we had, you have a brand new patient with diabetes. I imagine that you're just salivating at the opportunity. Where do you start in terms of evaluation? Do we take it at face value? This is someone with type two diabetes. Is there a chance that we just we've had this patient with diabetes that we're now trying to identify? Like, do you where do you start in terms of the initial workup, and then where do we go from here? Good. Yeah, I like the that terminology, and I do think it's important in the way we think about our patients that uh, that you had mentioned, like the persons with diabetes. You know, this person's pretty young at 39, and I guess it's all relative, but when individuals present to you with new diabetes, you do want to stop and think, what type of diabetes is this? And when I educate diabetes, I think that question is thought of as just something that endocrinologists or folks that do lots of diabetes care just, just know, and we don't. We look at factors that help guide us in understanding if we think it's the big buckets, type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, and then from there proceed with a treatment plan. And then we really need to monitor the situation and see what develops from the patient. Uh, it's funny, when you look up studies of, you know, how do we best determine this, they kind of cheat in saying, well, we monitored the patients long term, and then we were able to separate it because the truth of time tells us, did they completely destroy their beta cells, as happens in type 1 diabetes, the antibodies uh, wreck the beta cells, and then you end up with insulin deficiency totally, or 
Is this person able to maintain some healthy glucose levels with some medical support longer term without needing insulin? And so I know that's difficult to say that, you know, we're kind of guessing in a way, but there are some tools that you can use to help pin it down. I'd mentioned the age, you know, anyone that is aged 30 or younger, I would be suspicious that they could have type 1 diabetes. And I would order antibodies, the GAD65 antibodies, the beta islet cell antibodies, and the insulin antibodies. They often come together as a, as a grouping. The best are the GAD65s, so the most sensitive and specific for you. That being said, just because they might come back negative if they do, uh, that doesn't mean that you've ruled out type 1 diabetes. There are people that have type 1 diabetes that just don't have those antibodies. But those are a good tool, and I'd mention 30 or less is a good age to consider that. In this history, the person's BMI doesn't tell us that it's type 2 or not. You know, we said BMI of 33 here. Certainly, they're obese and have insulin resistance is going to be part of either their type 1 or type 2 story. And so that's not going to tell us yes or no which way to go. But I would consider it maybe in this person, you know, they're, they're new for your diagnosis to best pin it down, consider antibodies if they're available to you. You might consider at some point doing a C-peptide testing, and the best time to look at that is in either the postprandial time or just tell them to eat before they go to the lab. The C-peptide ranges from 0.3 to 0.6 nanomoles per liter when we're fasting and between 1 to 3 nanomoles per liter when we have eaten something normally. People with type 1 diabetes, those numbers are really on the lower ends of those. So if you have someone who has a high sugar and their C-peptide's measuring low, you're more suspicious of type 1 insulin deficiency. If you're measuring and their sugar's high and their C-peptide is very high, there's probably an insulin-resistant patient there and they more likely have type 2. That being said, if you were to test a person when they're fasting and their sugar happens to be looking pretty good, like let's say 100, a C-peptide for anyone with a healthy normal sugar is going to look in the normal or healthy range. The body is anticipating to turn that insulin off and so you can't interpret that. That's why I say postprandial or kind of random C-peptide and it always has to be paired with the glucose could be done. So I rambled there a bit. So I've to go back to this. I've seen people send insulin. Yeah. I was going to ask, did you send insulin too in that case? Or I've seen people send insulin levels as well, but it, it, it sounds like the way you're saying it, just the glucose and C-peptide is enough. Yeah. So if they're injecting insulin, so like this person sent home uh, from the hospital insulin, you know, you're going to be measuring what they inject. So that's a good point to bring up. Um, if they're not injecting insulin, it's also not the best. I would just do a C-peptide. It would be the, the most specific factor to look at. But yeah, returning to this case, you know, they have new diabetes. Education is a huge part of that. Diabetes is always a team sport. And so you need to get them tied in with diabetes education to best understand where the person's knowledge about foods and sugar and what the treatment plan might look like. And then, yeah, you're going to help work through that plan together. But yeah, glucose of 800, a leg abscess, and all the polys, polyphagia, polydipsia, polyuria, certainly you have diabetes present. And then you want to figure out the type and then develop a plan based on that. I was asking you offline about this person or just a person that has the catabolic symptoms. Does that necessarily tell you up front that this person's going to need insulin long term? That was one of the questions we had and always get in the hospital from the patients and then from the trainees like, okay, we're starting this patient on insulin in the hospital because they had such high glucose levels when they came in. Oftentimes they're not in DKA these patients that we're talking about, you know, you don't think it's necessarily a new type one. How do you know if the person's going to be on need insulin long-term? Can, can you know at this point in this, in this person? 
I would definitely give this person insulin to begin because their sugar is so high and they're actively fairly sick. So the first goal of diabetes care, number one, is render you glycemia. And insulin really has an infinite power and, and can do that for you. Once you're getting them to safer levels of glycemia, we could look to try and pull them off of insulin if it appears that they're going to maintain more healthy levels without, you know, lots of support with insulin. And that's a tricky area, you know, so usually people with type 2 diabetes are going to be needing something more like 0.5 units per kilogram per day of long-acting insulin, up to one unit per kilogram per day. And so really insulin-resistant patients you know, they may actually need that for a while before you start to see their body come back on. This person whose glucose is very high, if they've had high sugars that they didn't know about, um, which is often the case for type 2 diabetes for a long time, it can really poison the beta cells um, and, and temporarily disable them, something we call glucose toxicity. And they can end up with raging sugars that actually get to pretty good levels, maybe with uh, some small insulin doses. And that would be a good candidate for someone to consider trying to get them off insulin and onto some other agents uh, that might be easier, have more other effects, uh, some weight loss, and a less difficulty than insulin. Um, if they're on, I, I would propose if they're on, you know, 0.5 or 1 unit per kilogram per day and needing that really because their glucose remains high, it's going to be hard to take them off the insulin, but you could add other agents. Well, we'll see if this fits in here or not. So actually, I wanted to ask Jeff about sort of their discharge regimen. I feel like it's not uncommon to see patients who have, who've had um, a gap in their medical care or so who've not been seen by doctors for years and years, and then they declare themselves with a new diagnosis of diabetes, uh, whether it's from a complication or just because they start feeling terrible. And I will start them on a basal bolus regimen. So they've gone from like no medications to now being four injections a day, as well as the finger sticks to go along with that. And sort of all this sort of new, they become their diagnosis to some extent, which I imagine has to be terribly overwhelming. And I see this patient was discharged on just basal insulin, metformin. I guess I'm wondering, you know, who, how much how, how much of a minimalist can you get away with being? I mean, my own personal bias is not condemning people to four injections a day from zero, but that's just more for convenience than based on science or outcomes. But how, how do you make that determination and how sort of kind can we be to patients with new diagnoses like this? I think that's very key. Um, when you look at uh, the patient's response to what we're doing to them, uh, when we throw them all of these therapies at once, they really do poorly. And I think they end up doing poorly long term because they just get slammed. And I do think there's actually a moment where we need to introduce these. And I do think it is safe. If you're getting basal insulin, even for someone with type 1, it is hard for them to progress into a dangerous zone if they do really get that one shot a day you have insulin action present. Now, they're not going to have amazing sugars, but even a type 1, particularly early on, they may have some beta cell function and can help, you know, support some insulin production for those meals. We usually will add, you know, one or two insulin shots a day during meals if it's apparent that the basal is not enough. And so for this new diagnosis, I think basal plus an oral is reasonable. Um, they have obesity, so whether or not we know that they have a type 1 or type 2, it's reasonable to have them on metformin. Metformin is indicated primarily for people with type 2 diabetes, but you could use it in someone with type 1 diabetes that has obesity and insulin resistance, very reasonably. I've seen some patients where, kind of like this, uh, they, for whatever reason, tend to be these young men, 30s or 40s, and uh, they really like take to the diabetic education, diabetes education, and they totally change the way they're eating and their sugar just tends to rapidly come down and they almost take themselves off the insulin by the time I see them back in like six weeks or eight weeks. Even if this person, let's give them an A1C of 15% when they when we finally get the number back, but 
I've noticed that these uncarved blocks, so to speak, some of them can get by with just like really, if they really do follow, like if they were drinking a six pack of regular Coca-Cola each day, and then they stop that and they go on metformin and maybe a little bit of insulin. A lot of these people really rapidly come off the insulin and, and start to feel totally better, totally different. Matt, I totally agree. I've had this experience many times. You see someone, you're like, wow, you're going to need insulin. And then you get them to make some changes, like really soda or sweet tea is the big one, like you mentioned. Like We get mm. into the food space, but really, if you just start by getting those liquid sugars out of there, it really dramatically changes the A1C. Yeah. And if you can get some of our other diabetes agents that we're going to talk about here on there, you can see some big impacts. And so they'll suggest in the trials, the A1C decrement you'll get from these some of these products. Sometimes you'll blast past that. You'll get huge drops and very generous improvement without needing insulin. So Paul, going back to your point, this person that was discharged, I think it was very appropriate what they were started on. I don't think they need to be slammed with you know multiple injection a day, even if we're not sure of the type yet. And we could build up to that if it becomes clear that they're needing it. And you mentioned the one or two injections a day. And I, when I was looking at the ACE algorithm, the most, the 2020, I believe is the most recent one that I was able to find. They were mentioning that like, it's not, I commonly see patients get just thrust onto this three times a day or even worse, three times a day, plus a correction scale four times a day. And then, you know, that's really complicated for someone who's got a new diagnosis but I like this like this concept of this uh, basal plus one or basal plus two. Or do you use that even in patients who are more established that you know are going to need the basal bolus, Jeff? Is that more of a common thing that you're doing now? It, it's possible, particularly for older patients. Um, you'll find sometimes people are eating like one meal a day. And we just have this concept yeah. of like, oh, basal plus three shots a day, like assuming everyone eats like three pretty big meals. And some pe- a lot of people don't. Yeah. And so I think you do have to kind of, you know, we talk about getting to know the patient and we cringe a bit because we're like, well, we have no time. That's, that's the, the common denominator constantly of difficulty is, oh, I have no time. But some of the things you really want to get to know is what they're eating and, and really the meal structure a bit. You know, having your dietitian work with them or the diabetes educator or even just yourself doing a quick like, hey, tell me about a usual day for you. It makes a huge difference in planning the regimen, particularly if you're going to use insulin. They might eat a bigger meal like dinner, which you could use the insulin for. And if it's maybe a smaller breakfast or lunch, they might not need it, even in for a patient that's had this for a while. Yeah. So at our first visit with this person, we're going to, you know, make sure they understand their medications. We're going to make sure they get hooked up with an eye exam, a foot exam, you know, that kind of good stuff. Get them in with an educator for diabetes. When would you follow this person up? When would you repeat the A1C? Um, for someone like this that's such a new diagnosis? Yeah, so every three months on the A1C, just because like we know it, it has that long period of time that we need to affect that number with what you've established. But that being said, they should get hopefully some kind of medical interaction sooner than three months, you know, if they're new di- with diabetes. And that could be, again, nurses, case managers, other people that you have around you. Um, it, it is, looking at my own schedule, difficult to turn around people before a three-month or four-month, you know, with the way our schedules yeah. are. But if you can get a team around that, you know, if you can refer them to diabetes education, that can start that process. And there's a big difference between someone who's had that education and not. A lot of my patients, you know, again, it's time. Sometimes they wonder what's the value of doing this. 
Um, I think we all get a bit frustrated um, and maybe we don't even realize the value of it. But I will just say patients that have it and you should really try and coach it up, you know, like uh, talk it up to say, you know, and maybe get to know your people. That way you can say, hey, I'm referring you to Pat. She's awesome. She's been mm-hmm. doing this a lot of years and she'll get you in and really get you to know about diabetes. That makes a difference versus just send it out. So that can be hard to get to know your people, but it helps. I think there's some places too where pharmacists will do this kind of medication management for either diabetes or blood pressure or uh, other medications. Paul, you were nodding your head. Do you do you use? How do you do this when you see these patients? Yeah, no, I will say we're fortunate at Cashlack North Northeast (laughs) um, to have a collaborative practice agreement with a a spectacular pharmacy team in the School of Pharmacy who are thoroughly versed in the literature, really comfortable, can actually even do the teaching of how to do the injections and the self-monitoring. And they they do, frankly, a better job than I think most of us as as physicians do. Like, So I rely on them heavily. And they can tell you, obviously, what's covered and work with pharmacies. They have a skill set that is really complimentary um, and hugely useful. So if you hopefully... Everybody else has those at their institutions because it's 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 a real boon. Well, I want to recap uh, this this first case, and we'll we'll move on. So this guy, he's thirty three. Jeff, you gave us the age cutoff for typing diabetes. Definitely under thirty. You know, consider could this be a type one? Um, think about sending the gads. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to throw out there. You can get type one at any age too, just to say that. Yeah. But that's yeah. Okay. That would be my kind of. You should be a lot more suspicious. Yeah. Right. Okay. So for the recap, the age 30, if they're around 30, think about it, but type 1 can occur at any age. So if it doesn't make sense, you can send the antibodies, usually come in a bundle, but it's the GAD65, the islet cell antibodies, and the insulin antibodies, right? Um, And then the BMI doesn't necessarily tell us type 1 or type 2. You can't just place all your stock in that. C-peptide level, if we send that postprandial, and it's low, you know, that could be that could be support that this could be someone with a type one because it should be high after a meal. And you want to check the glucose at the same time, make sure because if the glucose high and the C peptides low, Jeff, that you said that would kind of go along with this, you know, more likely a type one or more like a type one. Anything yes, there yeah, from the, the diagnosis piece to add? No, you've totally nailed it. I mean, there's some interesting work coming out looking at triglycerides, which tend to be higher for people with type 2 diabetes because there's an insulin resistance that drives the triglycerides higher. That being said, uncontrolled sugar can cause triglycerides to appear high, so that's tricky. But you just have to maintain suspicion. And someone who really is failing on our non-insulin therapies and just maintains high sugars, again, you got to suspect they have type 1 um, and that they need insulin. Got it. So on the hospital discharge side of things, we talked about how maybe basal bolus four injections a day is a little, might be too complicated for some patients. So you could send them out maybe on a, like this guy, metformin and a a good dose of a basal insulin. He was sent out on Glargine 30 units. Um, That might be okay. And if their sugars start to get lower and they're requiring low doses, maybe those are people over time, you can taper off the insulin. But if they're requiring really high doses of insulin just to maintain their sugars, then maybe those are people that you need to keep on. And we talked about older patients might not need basal bolus. They might need just the the bolus with whatever their bigger meal of the day is. And uh, Paul, anything else I'm missing from what we talked about here? No, that was that was a great summary. I wonder if I could just change the case just a little bit, and I don't want to put Jeff on the spot. But I feel like this is, you know, this is a patient who was discharged on an insulin regimen. They have at least some 
experience at least of being administered insulin. They know what the finger sticks look like. It's not unusual to make this new diagnosis in the outpatient setting. You know, someone with who's just feeling like crap and you sort of do the bread and butter workup and then they maybe they you're smart enough to do a point of care glucose and it's high, but you're not quite sure what that portends or there's glucosuria in your analysis. And then you get the A1C of 15 and say the patient is just adamantly opposed to insulin. That ball has not been started rolling. They haven't been through the entire process. Like, do you have, for someone with an A1C like this, where you have a pretty good suspicion for type 2 diabetes, do you have an approach to just the oral regimen other other than sort of continuing to sort of work with the patient and try to get them comfortable with the idea of possibly needing insulin? Is there, where do you start from the oral standpoint or is there a way to kind of finagle what we have available to us? What's the safest way to approach that, I guess, is the question I might ask. Yeah, I feel like this so, comes up a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, 15's getting pretty high on an A1C, you know, just for relativeness. You know, a 7 is an average blood sugar of 150. You add 30 for every point that's going to have A1C higher than that. So it's getting way up there into the 300 range. You know, safety for the patient is a problem when your sugar's over 200 frequently. The polyuria, you lose a lot of fluid volume, electrolytes, and it can, it can be challenging. If they're just totally not going to do insulin at all, I mean, usually you can walk people through it, have them pick up a pen, stop in with your nurse, you know, just kind of really uh, slow walk it with them. Show them a YouTube video, explain to them that the needle's 32 gauge, you know, it, uh, they don't know what that is, but try and help them through. If they really don't though, Paul, you could start with, you're going to need something, a little, you know, you're going to need multiple agents at once. And if you look at the, Matt mentioned the ACE algorithm, the ADA has algorithms, they'll usually have you start with metformin for sure for all patients. That's number one indicated. You're probably a GLP-1 agonist because that has a 2.A1C drop, powerful agents. Um, and those are once a week injection agents. So again, it's an injection. There's a new oral agent. Might be hard for you to get since it's new and it's expensive, but if you're, if you get semaglutide oral on, on your formulary, you could try. And then an SGLT2 inhibitor. What's really nice about the SGLT2 inhibitors is that it, the higher the sugar is, the better they work. So you might really get a good kick for this patient. A problem though is if this person's insulin deficient and we're not sure, um, we could have that euglycemic DKA event. And that would be where the patient's sugar approach is normal, but they're retaining ketone bodies in, the, in their bloodstream and they become basically ketoacidotic. And it's hard to know that because they hit the ER and their finger stick looks fine, um, but they're totally acidotic on their blood gas and they're really sick. So sorry to say, I don't have an exact perfect way. A lot of it's going to be, I would say, really try and press them and help them to get the insulin. If not, you could try those three agents. Um, again, a person who doesn't want to do the insulin shot, it's going to be tough to couch that through, but um, you could try. And I've seen patients, I mean, because because this comes up, I have seen patients in the you know, maybe not 17 or 18, but I've seen patients with an A1C of 13 and they totally, you know, they had a lot of room for improvement in their, in what they were eating. And when they really do get strict about it, even with just metformin, maybe like a little bit of a sulfonylurea, if you can't easily get some of the newer agents, which can be more expensive, then I, I have seen patients really drastically come down, but they really have to make major changes in that case. Paul, what do you, what do you think? No, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. And also just points well taken. I, I think, and we may have mentioned this on prior episodes too. A lot of the times when we talk about initiation of insulin, we talk about it like it's a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Like you're just, you're kind of wincing and you're like, I'm sorry to say, and I hate to break it to you. And we're going to have to do it. Like, instead of saying, well, it looks like we're going to have to start insulin. Don't worry about it. It's relatively actually a straightforward procedure. It's not all that much, not, not as painful as advertised. We'll, we'll have the pharmacist talk you through it. It's not a big deal, but it's what you need right now. And I think if you, if you couch it in terms of that way, as opposed to like you're condemning the patient yeah. to something, you probably get a little bit more buy-in. So I think some of it's a little bit about approach too. Yeah. I love and I, that. I often yeah. me mention there too, Paul, like 
we don't know yet. I don't know yet if you'll need this forever, but a lot of patients uh, are just need it temporarily when they're first diagnosed and we're able to to wean them off. Like we just don't know. We'll just have to see how your body reacts. And But it is, yeah, it is. I, I agree with you, Paul. People take it pretty poorly sometimes when you tell them that you want to start the bud insulin. Today's podcast is sponsored by Birch. Audience, you remember Birch. They're a mattress brand that makes organic, comfortable, beautiful mattresses. I've been sleeping on a Birch mattress for at least six months now, and I just love it. There's no way I'm returning this thing, but Birch offers free shipping, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. Plus, these mattresses have a 25-year warranty, and if you don't like it, they'll pick it up for you, but I know that's not going to happen because, like I said, I'm super happy with my Birch mattress, and I've had it for six months. Birch mattresses are made right here in America with just three materials sourced straight from nature, organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs. What are you waiting for? So if you're looking for a new mattress, why not head over to birchliving.com curb and check them out. Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free EcoRest pillows. Go to birchliving.com slash curb. So let's let's move on to the next case. Our patient, this uh, first patient, he does great. We actually do well on the basal insulin. We wean him down. He gets on metformin and uh, does okay. But let's go to a new case. This is a 55-year-old woman type 2 diabetes. She has obesity, BMI is 32, high cholesterol. She has OSA. She's here for follow-up. Her A1C, Jeff, is 10.2%. She's on metformin and glipizide XL, both at like decent doses. Let's say 10 of the glipizide, and she's on 1,000 twice a day of the metformin. She isn't having any hypoglycemia, but uh, she's gained 10 pounds, and she's been pretty sedentary. She was afraid to leave her house uh, the past year. And uh, she says that she's eating actually like salads and she's not really having a lot of dietary indiscretions. You know, I, I do feel like I see these patients once in a while where this A1C is in the 8 to 10% range. They're on some medications, but they're just not controlled. And, and they swear that they're really not eating like just, you know, they're not having a six pack of Coca-Cola like our, our first patient was before he was diagnosed. What do you think about when people present like this? How do you approach it? Yeah, this is an awesome case because this we see every day. And I think these patients forever have been shamed. You know, uh, they come, you see them come to the clinic with the tail tucked between their legs, like just so afraid to show you what their sugars are doing and just they can't lose weight. They're trying a lot of things. And it's just so frustrating. And, you know, their metabolism has gotten to a point where it's going to be more challenging to do those weight losses. Their body fat and their hormones of preservation of fat are now really at a level that is different than a lean individual. And they're going to have a lot of struggles. Um, and they had probably potentially some struggles that got them to that body weight that worsened the risk for their diabetes. Being obese is the number one risk factor for having type 2 diabetes, which is what I'm thinking in this case. She's 55, average age of type 2 is 50. Um, I don't think I would go on a hunt for antibodies or C-peptides or type 1. She's, I think we've, you know, we can go forward. You're going to massively help this person by getting her off sofinereas. Me and probably most diabetes clinics and doctors hate sofinereas. They really only exist because they're cheap. 
unfortunately. They function, you know, you have to take them before meals uh, because they will cause a non-glucose-dependent release of insulin from the beta cell. And so what that means is that no matter what the person's blood sugar is, that cannot modify the release of insulin. They're going to go, and that's going to start driving sugar into the cells. And that, if not paired with food intake, can lead to hypoglycemia. And if it's not perfectly balanced in the system of the person, is going to over time cause weight gain. It's usually, in this case, is actually a perfect stem. It's 10 pounds. That's the typical weight gain that occurs with an insulin regimen, which again, insulin is not the bad guys. And I think going back to Paul's point, when we paint it that way, it's like scary. It's like the evil pirate, to go back to your pick of the mm-hmm. week here. It's, uh, arm, you know, it's not. It's actually a powerful, <laughs> wonderful weapon. And uh, it, it works well. But in this case, we're going to help her a lot. And I would highly recommend trying to get her on um, either a GLP-1 agonist so these agents provide something called the incretin effect. Incretins were hormones that were really discovered in the 1900s and able to be synthesized um, in the 1990s. And the word comes from intestinal secretion. We knew it came from the intestines. It's released after we eat food, and it causes us to release more insulin. It helps the beta cells stay alive and do their work. And it has all of these other plethora of effects. It has the muscles get ready to take up sugar, tells the liver to stop manufacturing sugars, and it really brings that blood sugar down nicely by affecting all of these diabetes pathophysiologic areas. And weight loss is the huge piece of that. Patients lose good weight with this. And another really cool thing is that we know this in the studies and the data, but what I want your listeners and all of us to engage with is... Not only do these have a medical effect to do that, but now is the time if you start one of those agents that to give them their diet and exercise plan because it'll actually work. They have these medicines work through inducing satiety and you know the effect of the, these hormones. The, I mentioned that they come from the intestines, lots of sites of action, and we know they also talk to the intestines to say, hey, slow down. And they induce satiety. These patients will actually have good weight loss. So I would choose one, uh, you know, They study them, the companies with the direct-to-consumer advertising and the ways they want us to make money for them. They're all being found to be relatively class-effect similar. And so whatever you have on formulary, whether it be dulaglutide, semaglutide, liraglutide, exenatide, um, whatever you can access, I would consider. There are some subtle differences. I think the once-a-week injections are much better for compliance and efficacy and for weight loss. But they work. You'll do very well by stopping this finery and getting around that. Your other consideration could be a SGLT2 inhibitor. And just to remind the audience, the sodium glucose-like transport 2 that is in the proximal tubule of the kidneys, and when you block that, the person urinates out sodium and glucose and water. So as you're urinating out about 300 kilocalories of sugar a day, your patient loses weight. What's awesome about both of these products, the GLP-1 agonist, uh, which are injections, there's one new one that's, uh, it's not a new uh, molecule, but they've newly made it oral, semaglutide, and the SGLT2 inhibitors is that they have very little hypoglycemia potential. Um, And so for a person that is not on insulin, it's actually considered to be statistically like null, that that doesn't cause lows. If they're on insulin, it can potentiate the insulin and cause lows. So you really need to reduce the regimen if they're on insulins. But yeah, you're going to save this patient. I'm telling you, she'll lose weight. She will prevent progression of beta cell loss by losing weight and losing visceral fat out of her body. And you should consider one of these two agents would be wonderful for her to be on and lose weight and get her diabetes under control. 
So we would stop the, the glipizide XL and we would continue the metformin. We'd add either a GLP-1 once, preferably the, a once weekly or an oral SGLT-2 inhibitor. And with the ACE um, guidelines, and I'm sure the American Diabetes Association guidelines also have this in there, in, in some of their principles in their algorithm, they actually just put right up there like avoiding hypoglycemia and weight gain are some of the key things that you're trying to do. And unfortunately, the older agents, especially the older oral agents like sulfonylureas and then, well, insulin as well, they both cause, they can cause hypoglycemia and weight gain. And these newer agents, as you pointed out, don't. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this on past episodes, but there's the cardiovascular benefits and with the SGLT2s, the renal benefits. As far as I, I know, Jeff, the with the GLP-1 agonist, the renal benefits are not as clear or consistent, but it seems like with SGLT2s they are. Do you, That's can you speak to that a little bit now that I'm thinking yeah, so, out loud about it? <laughs> yeah, no, the, the brief history was that in 2008, the FDA required these CVOTs, these cardiovascular outcome trials, from any- right diabetes drug manufacturer because of the old TZD heart failure risks. So we have this plethora of data and it's really hard to to actually take in and understand. It's just, there's a lot to get through. To go to your points, the GLP-1 agonists, there's definitely good data for cardiovascular benefit for high-risk ASCVD patients, particularly for secondary prevention. Um, there are mm. uh, single agents that have some primary prevention data that's stronger. And again, the overriding one would be which one can you access in your formulary, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and I think they're starting to see class effects. I agree the renal protection with the GLP-1 agonist is, is a beginning story. I think it might be more intrinsically related to the sugar control and the weight loss versus uh, we don't know that there's uh, GLP-1 receptors in that site that get improved. Um, we do think the afferent arteriole uh, dilates a little bit, and we know that that protects the kidney. So there might be something to the GLP-1s there. We definitely know SGLT2 inhibitors protect the kidneys. It was kind of a surprising finding because for a long time, researchers thought that blasting more sugar down the, the tubular tracts <laughs> would damage them. And, and, um, and so it was, they actually knew about these molecules and the, these medications for a while before they came to market because the thought was that they would cause tremendous damage. And in fact, they don't. They really protect kidneys. The problem is that the FDA limits where we can currently prescribe those down to, you know, below 45 for some of these agents, below 30 or, or between 30 to 45 for currently one of the agents that's out there. And so um, we have to be careful with SGLT2 inhibitors for very low GFR patients. I will say that there is data that's forthcoming and, and is being produced that is showing that we have patients in subset analyses with GFRs in the in the 15 to 30 that actually do really well on, yeah. on these. So I think that we're going to see the FDA and the labeling bring those GFR cut points down for SGLT2 inhibitors. Cardiovascular outcomes we know are great with those agents. And uh, just every day we're seeing the trials come out. To go back to the GLP-1s quickly though, I will say they are labeled, all of them, with caution below, really relative contraindication below 30 GFR. That being said, most experts would say um, off-label that they could really be used all the way into and through dialysis. Because hmm. the main thing that you're going to see as a problem is going to be potentially more nausea. And so you, that would be the reason to watch out. But those are, so I would say to save uh, that agent a little bit back on this renal story would be that you can use it across maybe a bigger spectrum of renal disease as of now. But yeah, yeah. I mean, both of those agent fields are great. 
Thank you. So much great information there. I, I think it was, so the DAPA CKD trial, if you look at like the, the, they did include patients with the lower EGFRs in there and it didn't, yeah. you know, there was not, so I guess maybe that's the subgroup, so the subgroup analysis from that trial, probably others, hopefully these agents are being used a lot. So we'll, we'll know in the future about the SGLT2s. And then with the GLP-1 agents, um, that's great. I hadn't heard that you know they they're being used that low. I, I've seen them in for people with CKD four, but I didn't know they were even dipping into patients on dialysis and using those. So this patient, she doesn't have CKD, so she could she could use either one, and uh, and we'll see we'll see how she does, and hopefully this will help her out. Um, let's say if she had been on insulin, Jeff, instead of glipizide XL. I guess the decision would be, do we continue the insulin or do we add a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2? And last time we had you on about two years ago, you said it was still your practice to lower the insulin a little bit to make room. Is that still something you're recommending? Like, let's say she was on 20 units of Glargine, a basal insulin plus metformin, and then we were still thinking about starting her on one of the newer agents to help with the weight and the lower the A1C further. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so you got to decide if you think this person's on a homeopathic dose of insulin or if you think they're actually getting something heavy for treatment. So, you know, um, 20 units is probably at the point where you could you could drop that down to like 10 and then start your GLP-1 and see where she goes. Most of the time, I would, if they're on a heavier dose, you know, if they're on 30 or 40 or 50 basal units of insulin a day, I would probably do a 20% reduction to make room for your GLP-1 agonist and then monitor their sugars from there, making further reductions. Hopefully, patients have been titrated on how to titrate basal insulin, you know, targeting fasting morning sugars of 80 to 130 and reducing their, their basal insulin by about two to three units every three days to reach those numbers. If they're starting to fall low, they need to back off. What's great about the GLP-1 agonists, the once-a-week injections, is that they have to build up steam. Their half-lives and the fun- way they function, the pharmacokinetics of such, is that you have to wait about four weeks before it's really getting its full action. So that gives you a, a good month for the patient to further titrate down off the insulin. But yeah, if you're at 20, you could probably m- take a huge drop off of it, uh, go down to 10, maybe off, and start that uh, GLP-1 agonist. If they're higher than that, I would 20% drop the basal and then have the patient titrate off it if they can. Okay. Do you do, is there any sort of practical counseling that you do for patients, specifically, I think for the GLP ones in terms of when you initiate therapy, I'm thinking one of our weight loss doctors actually will co-prescribe like on Dancitron, um, just like those two prescriptions just going hand in hand as sort of counsels, just because it's, it's, especially as the GFR starts to drop down, you see more and more of the nausea. So she's a little bit more proactive about that just so patients tolerate it. Do you do anything like that or do any other anticipatory guidance when you're starting these agents? I haven't seen really major problems with nausea. Uh, it's definitely the limiting factor when it does occur. I wouldn't be opposed to that. I'm a little bit concerned about, you know, long-term frequent taking those medications. And Densitron's probably not the worst in the world. Uh, you do have to worry about, you know, does that patient actually have some gastroparesis? And then we're not helping the patient by adding that agent. You know, you could do, uh, you know, a fancy gastric emptying study. Uh, they'd, of course, have to be off the GLP-1 for a full month to do that. So that could be hard. But, you know, I'm not opposed to it. But again, consider gastric um, delay as a concern for that patient. Yeah. I think the other thing we talked about last time with SGLT2s, just to remind people, is that there can be some blood pressure lowering effects. So take that into consideration, especially if the patient doesn't have much room to go on their blood pressure. And then if they're on a thiazide 
or thiazide-like diuretic. Jeff, is it still your practice to pull those off? I think with loop diuretics, last time we said we continue the loops with SGLT2s, but the thiazide or thiazide-like, we would potentially hold those. You said it perfect. And luckily, those agents are being vindicated from the... There was previously concerns about Fournier's gangrene and lower extremity amputations, and even urinary tract infections. We're not seeing that that data holds true. Urinary fungal, you know, yeast infections is certainly sure. a problem that can occur, um, but the more concerning items, no. And then we'd already stumbled in our conversation today on the euglycemic DKA. You really can't use these in, in type 1s. There was a great lecture I went to recently, a person who's a high-level VIP practitioner who's tried it in a type 1, and the sugars were amazing. But the person had these really sporadic DKA presentations that were like near deadly on an SGLT2 uh, SGLT2 inhibitor. And uh, it was like a perfect patient, perfect doctor combo, uh, patients on a CGM, on a pump, doing everything perfectly. But like if you're a type 1 and your pump uh, site kinks, you can go into DKA pretty rapidly. So scary in an insulin deficient patient to be on those agents. You have to be really careful. So just to bring that out. But yeah, very. I should just say in, as a kind of a big statement to the audience, like these are very safe agents. And I think if you are hesitant in prescribing GLP-1 agonists or SLT2 inhibitors, you really need to start looking at that. Uh, we need to be prescribing these. They're very underprescribed agents. And the ADA brought them up to be really primary treatments right after metformin. There was more hesitancy in doing that before because data was coming out about maybe these concerns, what the true benefit is. These agents are game changers, and they are really standard of care now to be the initiation of therapy for new type 2s. Yeah. And I heard, you know, Paul, I, I just, I know that the cost is an issue. I know people on Twitter were asking us about that. And Paul, you you work in a, I think a lot of your patients, um, you, you deal with a lot of Medicaid or underinsured medical assistants or patients who are underinsured or uninsured. Um, are you finding that you're able to get the them? I mean- Yeah, almost uniformly in the SGLT2s. You may, you may have to go through a hoop that is not flaming. You may have to fill out a PA, which is not prohibitive. And it's usually pretty easy to actually get them approved. Yeah. But I think for both the GLP-1s and the SGLT-2s, you know, whether or not it's the daily or, or the weekly, that, that might vary a little bit. But for the most part, they are they are obtainable. And it's more a matter of just right. convincing the patient that it is convincing the insurance company. Yeah. I think if you if you if the patients are truly uninsured and they're not on medical assistance, I, I think that is yeah. that is hard. The other group that I've found trouble with is the patients on Medicare. Because just the way there's this donut hole thing that I don't fully understand, but you know it can they can be quite expensive for for the Medicare population, I guess depending on their plan is just that's my anecdotal experience. Can I say real quickly? Just I'm sorry, Jeff. I feel like you're on the cusp of seeing something momentous, so hold on to it, please. <laughs> but I just want to mention our our former chief resident, Matt Sammy Alisfar, just put out a tutorial on the donut hole today. That is spectacular in terms of how it's framed and what the donut hole is and how it Amazing. works before and afterwards. So it's if you if you struggle with that like I have, it's 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 really it's it, I found it very helpful. So I'm just throw that okay. out there as a, another mini pick of the week. So. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Jeff. I didn't have anything momentous. No, I was I guess uh, <laughs> okay. I was anticipating <laughs> your comment. Your face, I, guess. <laughs> I was let's sitting go there to with the next breath. So we let's go to the next case. I think the next case is uh, we because we've covered so much ground already. I think and we've sort of set up this next case, which is. This is a 66-year-old male. He's got CKD4. His GFR is 15 to 25. He has high blood pressure, COPD, HEFPEF, and he's here for follow-up diabetes. His A1C is 9%. 
He's only taking glipizide right now. He doesn't want to take insulin. So like, what are the options for this guy? Because he's below, even though we can use, if they're already on metformin, right, we can use it down to an EGFR of 30 now, but this is someone we wouldn't initiate at this level. What other oral options does he have? Or you, you just mentioned, it sounds like he can, he has a GLP-1 agonist now that we could potentially put him on, correct? Yeah. So the GLP-1 you could consider, yeah, I would think that it would be all right. Um, DPP-4 inhibitors are very weak agents, but this could be a patient we consider using it in because he doesn't need a lot of strong control. It might give enough. Um, those are your glyptin, citagliptin, allogliptin, saxagliptin. Um, and, you know, they're pretty weight neutral. So in older patients, sometimes we worry about weight loss happening. They don't cause hypoglycemia. But yeah, this case is really kind of near and dear to me in a way. I'm actually, as we're podcasting in my uh, house of where I grew up, I'm vacationing in New York. And I have an elderly father who's 75, and he has bad vascular dementia from diabetes. He actually doesn't recognize me. It's a little difficult. And uh, has bad kidney function. His GFR is like 12. So I'm here treating him, actually, as the in-home endocrinologist. Uh, As I'm home, my mom does a great job taking care of this guy. But it's you have to be careful with persons that have dementia and uh, tricky diabetes. Uh, Insulin works really well. You have to, like you've mentioned, be careful. Uh, Fast-acting insulin will drop these patients pretty hard. You can usually do okay with basils. And if they miss a basil, you might get away with a day or two of missing and not getting into like really bad situations. So this might be one where if a caretaker can give a basal dose maybe every two or three days, that might be acceptable. So you might need to get creative, you know, get out of the box a bit from what we normally do. And that could be okay to just keep things tamped down. If you have caretaker, it will help. But I think those would be two good options. The GLP-1 agonist, you have to be careful uh, if he's going to get nauseous and weight loss. But yeah, older patients, hypoglycemia has been something that is now the ADA, American Diabetes Association, has as a very high priority. And it's going to need to be included in all of our notes for people with diabetes, uh, particularly after a certain age, I think 65 now. And um, yeah, we need to be documenting it, talking about it, looking at it because it's damaging the patient and really can trigger very bad health events. But yeah. Not to get into much, um, you know, into the the personal things, but um, yeah, diabetes is very, uh, not only in my daily practice, but in my um, family life, a difficult disease. And we have to be careful in this situation. Yeah. Wow. That is, that is a tough, I mean, that's a tough situation. Thank you for that answer. This case, so this was our patient uh, with CKD4, low EGFR, and their A1C is a little bit high on just the glipizide. So we were thinking about maybe putting them on either a DPP-4 or you said maybe a GLP-1 agent and we'd be real careful. Let's change it slightly. Let's say this patient was a little older and sicker. They're 82. They do have the vascular dementia and they have CKD as well, CKD-4 as well. They're on a really low dose of Lantus, like seven units of Lantus. And the family's really excited because the A1C the day before the clinic visit with you was 6.4%. So they're just like really thrilled. Previously, it was 10%, but then the family took over, given the insulin, uh, making sure it was given every day. They really made the diet very friendly for diabetes. And now we have this lower A1C. How do you talk to a family like this about de-escalation? Because that's where my, my mind would go here. Does this patient even need insulin? And are they having hypoglycemic events that we're not catching? Yeah, this is a perfect case again. And um, 
I think when we talk about, Paul brought up some of this, the aspects of how we talk to patients and how they feel and respond with the way we bring it up. Like he had previously said, if we make insulin this scary thing, they're going to respond in that way. When we talk about removing therapies, often there's this feeling that we're acknowledging this person's older or maybe dying or has, you know, severe disease enough that we're like, well, we don't need to do anything anymore. We're giving up or we're, you know, not helping them anymore. And I think that's tricky and you need to be cognizant of watching the patients and their families' reactions as you talk about this. I, you know, I'd let them know, you know, the goals for A1C for individuals of advanced age or with significant diabetes comorbidities is going to be up to A1Cs of eight, maybe eight and a half. And that lesser therapy is found in studies in older adults to allow them to live healthier and longer. And so I think making statements like that helps them realize that, you know, it's a focus on what are we doing? What are we doing? As we're adjusting the regimen to allow them to live longer. So it's, it's about, like Paul had mentioned, it's a lot about how we introduce the topic, but this easily, hopefully the audience just with the STEM was already thinking, I need to peel back on therapy. The lows are what's actually going to harm this person. And we know from studies of, of uh, the VADT, the ADVANCE, the ACCORD trials, that for people with advanced diabetes complications, when you try and achieve what we normally would in the younger healthy patients, uh, those A1Cs of seven and less, you actually end up killing them and it's from hypoglycemia. And you can cause vascular events and more dementia with those lows. So, yep, peel it back and, and be good with the patient family. We, we've learned so much from you tonight, Jeff, but we, we, we do have at least one lightning round question that comes from the great Dr. Paul Williams. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks for that setup. I think it was actually your initial question, but I disagreed with you. But I guess it was the hot topic for a little while. So this idea of either intermittent fasting or even ketogenic diets. And I feel like mixed in with someone who has a background diagnosis of even type 2 diabetes. Actually, let's just stick with that because I feel like that's sort of more what I deal with more frequently. Like, is there any specific counseling that you have about patients who are interested in those diets or any adjustments that you make with medication regimens for, for folks who want to pursue those? Yeah, there's one trial I'd have people uh, Google or look up is the direct D-I-R-E-C-T trial, diabetes and remission um, uh, related to these very strict diets. They were going down to 500 kilocalories, which is not much. Yikes. And uh, But they were able to put about a third of these individuals into remission and the compliance or ability to maintain the diet was actually surprisingly higher than I thought. I mean, a good portion of patients stuck with it. Uh, lost weight, and actually put their diabetes in remission. The concept came from in these pre-gastric bypass periods where people would go on these liquid kind of protein shake diets and they would like come off all their diabetes meds because you just stop them when they're, when they're doing this and would not require any help with their sugar. So I do think there's a space for this in the right patient. If someone's on a lot of insulin, Again, once you're past the homeopathic dosing, you know, 20 units sort of uh, once a daily of basal, once you get to the higher doses, they're probably insulin deficient and taking them off of, you know, stopping agents is a little bit more tricky at that point because it's not clear that you could reduce their insulin a lot, reduce their calories a lot, and that they would maintain normal glucose. Um, I think in a person that has beta cell reserve, you could more reserve, you could consider dropping agents and dropping food a lot, and you could see uh, maintaining a good sugar, uh, less less danger present there. But I, I'm a, I'm for it. You know, I would just say with ketogenic diets, um, we see weight loss is pretty consistent with those. However, it's hard to maintain that, and the lipid profile looks horrendous. I mean, the LDL goes up. It's a high fat diet. 
I think there's a little bit more support for certainly we know the Mediterranean diet, the plant-based uh, really got a lot of data going and trying to, you know, the clean proteins in addition to the fats and, and the plant products is probably the best way to go. But I actually think intermittent fasting for a younger, healthier, less comorbidly sick patient is worth a shot. If they have an interest, try it. Yeah. And this is, we're defining this as like skipping breakfast or where they don't eat for a couple of days at a time every so often. Is it, you know, I know there's different definitions of this. Yeah. So um, I would say the best is, is probably to consider what we would call time-restricted eating where the person defines a period of the day where they can eat because it just has to be translatable to the patient. Um, Got it. You know, but yeah, maybe considering you know, just telling them to eat one meal um, and then skip two others, or maybe have a protein shake with some calories at one of those other meals and then a third that's skipped, just to build it in a way a person would understand. But yeah, oftentimes I've seen these written out as, you know, six hour to eight hour blocks of time when the person, you know, that can't go crazy and eat everything, but they can consume the healthy foods that they're try trying to get in at that time. I think it's exciting. I have to imagine the, the adherence to the 500 kilocalorie a day diet has to come from being too weak to get to the refrigerator. Like I can't imagine any other reason that you'd be able to actually adhere to that. That's good. Um, you know, I think there's something too to resetting some of our our uh, processes and our hormones and, um, you know, ghrelin and others that drive hum hunger reflexes seem to get into better patterns when people uh, experience fasting. Uh, unfortunately, because we just have so much food around and a lot of calories, our body doesn't experience a fasted state, which is actually a healthy physiology to have. Some ketone production, some fasted state is actually very good and productive. And we often, many of us avoid it because it, it can be literally painful with hunger pains and things, or some of us feel less productive at work or more anxious. And that makes it hard because we're a very um, high demand society everywhere. And I, I think doing these things is difficult. But if a person is interested, I often try and help talk them through the idea. People ask me, well, what's the diet I can be on where I'm never hungry? And some of my response to them is, I would never want you on that <laughs> diet. We, you know, hunger is natural and healthy. And, uh, you know, you, you know, there's no way around that. But, but going back, some of these agents, again, some of the satiety suppressors and maybe a talk for a different time um, with obesity agents. It's unfair. Some people have a physiology where we can talk about it like, oh, it's just so easy. Just, you know, starve and just make it through. But um, some people's physiology is just so much different than ours and they live lives that aren't ours and they really need help. And there's a space for medicines and um, there are a couple that really work. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Anything you'd like to plug before we get into... Um, actually, we should ask you for for main take home points. That felt kind of like a take home point. I think that's why I forgot to to jump <laughs> to that. That was a great. Uh, I'm going to ask conclusion. you to top yourself and give. Can you can you tell people what do you want them to really remember? We talked a ton of diabetes tonight, but uh, what do you really want them to remember? Okay, so the first case is a person with new diabetes. You have to get them education. If they're not educated, they will not do well in the long term. Also, don't blast them with an overboard regimen, being super ambitious to get them to perfect goals up front. You know, you have to progress them uh, to their goal across time. Um, in our second case, a person trying to lose weight who's on okay agents, the sugar's not great. There are, are better medicines nowadays with renal and cardiovascular protective effects and uh, beneficial weight loss effects. So try to choose those. At, like we'd mentioned, they're not impossible to get. Get familiar with them. They're quite safe. 
and uh, you know be using those. And in the third case, elderly patients, we just need to back off on those regimens. A1Cs of eight um, for many of these older patients with lots of disease burden is very reasonable. And choosing agents that don't cause hypoglycemia, so find a reason insulin being those, and uh, it would be the safest, best way to go. But th- that's the encapsulation of the cases. Um, yeah, I think that would be good. All right. Jeff, is there anyone, is there any wonderful person, Jeff, that you would like to thank specifically? Yeah. So I'd love to thank my wife, uh, Dr. Juan Tran. So uh, whenever we put these things together, like uh, they would never happen without her because so like (laughs) uh, Matt will send me an email that will never get responded to. And then he'll text my wife or email. And then she gets back as like, okay, here's the date we're doing the curbsider show. Let's make it happen. So uh, I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm putting a a call out there for her to actually get this to work. All right. Hi, Juan. Thank you. Much appreciated. Uh, (laughs) Miss working together. So uh, with that, Paul, let's get to the outro. This reminds me of my second favorite pick of the week of yours, which would be your (laughs) wife. My wife. Like the first one would be the jump rope. And the second one, I'd like to pick of the week, my wife. Um, Great. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Okay, there we go. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, our twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Or you can contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Also, a thanks to VCU Health Continuing Education, who provides free CME credit for all healthcare professionals. You can visit curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And so, Paul, with all of that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the music that you're doubtless hearing behind our sweet, sweet voices. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.